So I'd invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, uh, the scripture text this morning, uh, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 119. We don't uh, have an inscription above this uh, psalm that tells us who is the author, uh, but many of the best commentators uh, believe that this is a composition of King David. And uh, having read this psalm often, uh, it so resembles an expansion of Psalm 19, uh, which is a Davidic psalm, that it would be very appropriate to consider this authored by him. In any case, it is the word of the living God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask for the working of your Holy Spirit once again. We reverence the Bible, the scriptures, as the Holy Scriptures, as your very word. We know that whatever scripture says, you have said. And that which you have designed for us to know and to understand, you have declared in the scriptures. We confess them to be the very word of God. And so we would come to them, not as an ordinary book, but a book that has all of the wonderful traits of the best kind of literature in the world and so much more. For in your word, we have words of everlasting life. And we would pray for your Holy Spirit to be ultimately the one who teaches us most truly and most convincingly and most faithfully what this word has to say. So grant to both of us, uh, as one who speaks and as all who listen, that measure of your Holy Spirit that enables us to not only hear the truth, but obey the truth because this will be pleasing to you, honoring to the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reviewing the nature of the series that we began in January and its purpose. Uh, the passage that we actually used to sort of launch this series on worship was going to read them for you and ask that you think about them. It's the story of the woman at the well. And in this particular story, uh, these several verses actually form at least the climax of the teaching of Christ. That may not be the climax of the story per se, but it is the heart of the teaching uh, that Jesus uh, presented to the woman at the well. And he said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now, is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I want you to see the connection. Uh, we find this connection here between worship, salvation, and those that the Father seeks in terms of salvation. Jesus is talking here about the purpose of salvation, and that purpose is to fulfill the Father's intention and design that people would worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, that's been the main uh, thesis, the main theme of our series so far. That is to say, we've been talking about what is our deemed us in order to restore to us that primary purpose of both time and eternity, that primary purpose of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And we have also focused upon the Psalms primarily in order to develop this theme. And we have talked about how appropriate this is because throughout all of history, uh, the, the main worship book of the people of God uh, has been the Psalms. And we've also encouraged you in terms of this series that we as believers who ought to be worshiping God daily ought to be reading the Psalms daily, reading the Psalms to guide us and to teach us and to direct us in our worship of God and all of his fullness as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have moved through also the major worship elements that we have customarily used in our Sunday morning worship. Uh, that simple acronym that's been so very helpful uh, for us to have a, a constant kind of liturgy pouring God for who he is, for what he's come to God, not like Adam who's fallen. That is to say, we come recognizing our kinship with Adam and that we need the grace of God in order to worship God properly. But we've always said this kind of confession is gospel confession. Because it's not confession in and of itself that is properly worshipped. It's the confession of our sin in light of what God has done in the person and work of his son. It is gospel confession. It is gospel in light of the grace of God. And then that third cardinal element of worship has been thanksgiving, where we recognize that all of the Christian life is in response to what God has done for us. We love because he's first loved us. We give back to God because he first gave to us the gift of his son, the gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation. And so all that we do in terms of our time, talent, tithe, in terms of our, our treasure, whatever God has given to us, giving back to him in faithful stewardship is a response of grace out of the gratitude within our hearts. And then we went to the fourth element, which is supplication, our request and petitions and prayers uh, on behalf of ourselves, but also on behalf of others, uh, preeminently those within our church family. So that's where we've been so far, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And now we sort of break the acronym that is so easy to remember, but we move on to another vital element of our worship. And so we add the letter I, I for instruction. Uh, but that word instruction can also represent uh, the teaching or the message or the sermon. It's, it's incidental what we name it. The key point is this. We come to the point where we are being instructed from 
the word of God. And we come understanding that this also is an element of worship, even an essential element of worship, that we would sit under the word of God, that we would see the word of God, hear the word of God opened up to us. Now, I'm emphasizing this as we begin this this new element of worship. I'm emphasizing its connection to worship for this reason. Uh, Among Bible-believing churches in America, it is common to make a distinction between the worship that people do and then the preaching. Let me point out examples of how this is said by worship leaders. I have heard this many times across America. I have heard this 13 years of hearing chapels done by a wide variety of, of uh, uh, believers, leaders, pastors uh, in, uh, in the Bakersfield area. Here's what I've heard said. We're going to have a time of worship this morning before we hear the message. Or something like this. This is the last song in our worship set before Pastor John comes to preach. Now, what's implicit in the way this is stated is the idea that worship is a preparation for hearing the sermon. But that hearing the sermon itself isn't part of worship. It's something else. It's something further. Which then carries the idea that worship, the singing, the prayers, all of that is preliminary. That hearing Pastor John or Pastor Jay or Pastor anybody, but hearing the pastor is the main thing. Or the idea is conveyed that uh, the worship part is really a kind of a warm-up, kind of a preparation for hearing the pastor preach. This is the viewpoint that actually exist in many churches, and I might say even most churches in Bible-believing America. And as I've said, I have heard it repeatedly. Now, I hope as I say this that you automatically recognize that we have never thought that way here. We have never spoken that way here in terms of our worship. Rather, we see that the instruction from God's word, the sermon, the preaching, the teaching, the opening up of God's word is itself an intrinsic element of worship. We believe that the reading and the teaching and the preaching of the word of God is itself worship. Now, because of this, for several weeks, we're going to focus then upon the I, this instruction from God's word as worship. As we do so, the kind of organizing theme, the kind of organizing truth that I want to present around instruction from the Word of God can be stated this way. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to His Word from the heart. That will be the theme as we carry on and look at this idea over the next several weeks or however long I'll be preaching through this particular section in terms of worship. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to his word from the heart. And so the beginning point is here, Psalm 119, this particular text, verses 1 through 8. Now, I want to give some information about this psalm, some background that's going to be helpful and important, because this will not be the only set of verses out of Psalm 119 that I'm 
going to be speaking from. First of all, this is a Hebrew alphabetical psalm. It has 176 verses. It's divided into 22 sections. And each section begins with a successive letter letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it begins with Aleph, eight verses, Beit, eight verses, Gimel, eight verses, Dalet, eight verses, and so forth. Well, what this means is that each line of the eight stanzas that you find within that section, each one of those begins with that first letter. So in this first section, one through eight, the, the main word that begins each verse begins with an Aleph. And then from uh, 9 through 16, it would begin with bait and so forth. Then also the key concept throughout the 176 verses, the key concept particularly is obedience to God's word. Key concept, obedience to God's word. We actually see the idea of, of obedience explicitly and implicitly in all of the ways in which God's word is described. In every one of the verses, all 176 verses, there is some Hebrew word that relates to the reality that God is Lord and his word is to be obeyed. In fact, the Hebrew uses some 13 different words to describe this. Uh, most of our modern translations use 11 or 12. But these particular terms are regularly used. Now, these first five or six are used 20 times or more. Law, statutes, precepts, decrees, commandments, rules, and then promise, way, faithfulness, righteousness, and pledge are used less frequently. But the main idea conveyed in all of this is that God is Lord and his law is his way of guiding and guarding every aspect of our lives. And on our part, our truest blessedness comes from obedience to God's word. And the connection to worship is this. We are worshiping God when we are living obediently to his word from the heart. Now, that's a natural expression and implication of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, we are worshiping God when we are living obediently unto his glory, to his word, from the heart. Now, with respect to these uh, first eight verses... It, there happens to be four natural divisions. So uh, verses one through three, we could title God's promise and our obedience. Uh, verse four, uh, we could say God's command and our obedience. Uh, and then uh, verses five and six, our prayer and obedience. And verses seven and eight, our worship and obedience. Now, this morning, we're only going to consider the first two of these, uh, God's promise and our obedience, God's command and our obedience. And then in two weeks, since uh, Jared's going to be preaching next Sunday, we'll pick up and resume and conclude uh, these verses. Okay, so first of all, verses one to three, I'm going to read them again. 
Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his way. So we have God's promise and our obedience. In these first three verses, David the psalmist is relating the idea of blessedness, that of obedience, the word of God. That what is promised in obedience is blessedness. So let's think about the nature of blessedness as we find it defined for us uh, throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Now listen carefully. Blessedness is the same thing that fallen human beings always seek. Or to put it this way, quote, the pursuit of happiness. Which is to say, fallen human beings are always pursuing their own good, their own sense of well-being. That which they think will give them a sense of contentment or purpose or significance or power or prestige or property in life. But the key difference for the redeemed is this. Blessedness seeks for something similar, but with the recognition that only in God, only in a redemptive relationship with God, do the proper things that are expressed by the way our desires are expressed in these things, the proper things ever truly come about, which is to say our true good, our true well-being, that which truly gives us contentment and purpose in life only come from a redeemed relationship with God who is our Savior and also who is our Lord. Therefore, blessedness is a God-centered happiness that differs from me-centeredness or circumstance-centered happiness, which is characteristic of the fallen world. The second thing we need to see is that the psalmist states that the condition of blessedness amounts to nothing less than proper obedience to the word of God, an obedience that is both external and internal. Now listen to what is said in verse 1. We have the believer walking in God's ways, and that walk is his outward life. It's his behavior, it's his conduct, his, his way of living that's public and visible. But then in verse 2, we see that a connection is made between this outward keeping of God's ways with the inward attitude, the inward disposition. So the truly blessed believer is the person whose outward obedience is actually an expression of his inward life. In his inward life, he seeks God with his whole heart. And then verse 3 kind of summarizes the person's life. First, negatively, he does no wrong. Positively, he walks in the way of God. Now, what we see here really mirrors what we see in Psalm 1 in the first two verses, which we're just, we've read it already, but blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You see, the, the, the believer who's truly blessed 
not only doesn't do what the wicked does, but he in fact lives his life delighting in the law of the Lord. And the Hebrew concept of delight is not only the inward attitude of the heart, but it would also manifest itself in terms of a believer's active and public life. So blessedness belongs to the person who obediently follows the Lord's word in order to be guided and guarded in all of his life. Now, let's apply this to human happiness because Psalm 1 begins with the concept of human happiness. Psalm 119 begins with the concept of human happiness from that God-centered, God-central perspective. All of the ways that the non-Christian world seeks to find happiness are paths of failure. It's why the Apostle John says, love not the world. Now, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world, and the world and its desires are, in fact, fading away. No. We understand this. If we are made by God, and we are made for God, then we cannot be happy apart from God. It's simple as that. If God made us, and God made us for himself, there is no ability to have genuine happiness apart from God. God is the ultimate and the essential element of our true happiness. But further, God can't be simply one part of several parts of our human happiness. God must be the central part and the center point in our lives. As God, as Lord, as King, as Master, as Creator, as Redeemer, as Sovereign, God must be the Alpha and the Omega of our lives in order for us to be truly happy, truly blessed. Honestly, halfway commitments halfway measures with respect to God will never prove out in terms of giving us this blessed life. Which is to say, if God has second or third or fourth place, then we're not seeking him with our whole hearts. And this promise of blessing can never be fully realized. For this reason both in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and on the words of Christ, on the lips of Christ, we find this statement. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And what Jesus intended for us to understand, even as it was written in the law of Moses, every word means a full diet of God's word. But to believe that small bites of his word, to believe that small bites will will deliver this kind of blessedness, this true happiness, is what we might 
deemed to be a form of spiritual anorexia. Once in my pastoral ministry, this was many years ago, I had a lady who came to attend our church at the beginning of the summer. She looked underfed, borderline emaciated. And one of our godly ladies got, got, got close to her in friendship and, and reached the point where she could ask her about her health. And that led to the discovery that from everything she said about herself, we understood she had anorexia nervosa. But, but in all of our talking with her, we could never penetrate the very sad delusion this woman believed. She was convinced she only needed 300 calories a day in order to live. And that was her very, very strict approach. Now, the story is involved. It's complex. But the sad outcome was that her physical approach to her daily bread not spiritual bread, but her daily bread, led to her death in six months. Now, I share that with you in order to help us to understand why the Word of God instructs us that man does not live by bread alone. Look, you can't live by bread alone and, and uh, on only 300 calories a day. I mean, you have to have a full complement of calories in order to live. So the point is, is that not only must you have a full complement of calories every day in order to live, in order for your daily bread to suffice, you have got to have an, a, a diet of the Word of God that is not in any sense anorexic. And, and that diet needs to be full, and that diet needs to be complete, and that diet needs to be all that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. We need a full diet of God's Word, which... As we're instructed in the psalm, we need to seek God and his word with our whole hearts. So as we hear God's word read and preached, we need to have the faith and the trust and the belief that our true blessedness, our true blessedness from God will lie in a full and faithful hearing and obedience to his word. Now, moving on to verse 4, God's command and our obedience. Uh, the psalmist writes, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Now, it's often said in the context of something like verse 4, that God's commandments are called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Therefore, all of the law has been given by God with this same intent, to be obeyed, and to be obeyed diligently. Now, I, I want to clear up something where people often get confused, and this isn't a digression. It, it's an important statement of background we need to once again rehearse. Uh, some of it may be new to some of you. Some of it may be, yes, I've, I've heard this before, but it's good for us to rehearse it once again. And it has to do with how we understand the law of God today. The key passage to understanding the law of God today is what we find in Matthew 5:17, where Christ says that he came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this means that some parts and consequently, these parts of the law have ceased. They were not abolished, but they ceased because they were fulfilled in Christ. The best analogy here is to think about the relationship of engagement to marriage and what happens on a wedding day. We know that the engagement is a period of time, a period of promise and commitment that gets fulfilled on the wedding day. The engagement ceases. The engagement is not abolished. The engagement finds its fulfillment in the commencement of the marriage relationship on that day. Now, there are parts of the law that have that exact relationship to Christ. Then there's another part of the law that's also fulfilled in Christ, but that part of the law doesn't cease, but rather it receives a deeper Christ-centered perspective, and it continues. So let's take a few moments to walk through this. First, I want you to think about all the parts of the law that involved uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple. Uh, those things are commonly called the ceremonial law. Uh, but all of them pointed symbolically to Christ in terms of types and shadows, and all of them were involved in how the people of God can worship God rightly in the context of sin. So first of all, we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. He holds a permanent priesthood, we're told in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 7, verse 24. Uh, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 24 in chapter 7 specifically says, because Christ lives and Christ continues forever. So the priesthood that God established under Moses came to its end at the cross. It wasn't abolished. It naturally, theologically, redemptively came to its end so that Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. The priesthood of the law of Moses was not abolished. It was fulfilled in Christ and came to an end. The distinction is crucial. Secondly, we know that Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices connected to that priesthood under Moses. So at the cross, all of those animal sacrifices, including even the meal offerings, came to their fulfillment in the sacrifice that Christ gave payment for our sins upon the cross. And so all of the sacrificial system ceased because it was no longer needed. Their function expired but not abolished. Their symbolism was fulfilled in the death of the true Lamb of God. And then thirdly, think about Jesus and the temple. The temple is the very dwelling place of God. For in Christ, in his incarnation, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in bodily form. And so with the incarnation, all that the temple represented as the house of God came to its fulfillment in Christ. And in that physical temple, the need for that physical temple actually ceased. 
and to prove that the temple was no longer to be understood as the house of God, God demonstrably destroyed it through the Romans in AD 70. So the priesthood, the sacrifice of the temple, these parts of the law of Moses, they all symbolized Christ, and they were all fulfilled in Christ. So necessarily, these earthly symbols expired while Christ continues to be their fulfillment forever. Further, we also know from Mark 7:19 that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. So these dietary regulations of the law of Moses likewise came to an end. Their purpose was also fulfilled in the coming of Christ. They had served to separate Jew from Gentile. They had served to preserve the distinctive Jewish identity, which also included the rite of circumcision, as the people of God. But with Christ's coming, these identity markers were no longer needed. Uh, the laws and regulations expired. They weren't abolished. They were not abolished because, as Christ says, they came to an end because his coming was their fulfillment. So what formerly separated Jew from Gentile expired in Christ. Because in Christ, there was to be neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body, one people of God. Now, there's also a third element of the law of God that's also fulfilled in Christ. But in its fulfillment, uh, what also is necessarily the case is that it continues. And this is what we know to be the moral law of God. Jesus defined the moral law of God this way. Matthew 22, 34 to 40, as the two greatest commandments, the first and greatest you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second, like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes on to say that this is the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two. But this law, to love God supremely, this, this law, to love your neighbor as yourself, was the very law that God wrote into us as image bearers. And that's why fallen Gentiles still remember this law within their conscience, as Paul describes in Romans 1 and 2. And it was in force before the law of Moses was actually given. And it remains in force as the perfect moral righteousness of Christ. It is this moral law in all of its perfection that is the very obedience of Christ that is our justification. It is that obedience to the perfect moral law of God. It's that work that saves us. And that law can never expire. And that law can never be abolished. It is, in fact, the very thing that separates good from evil. It's the very nature of God's nature himself. So like engagement and marriage, once again, what is it that does not expire or come to an end when the marriage engagement ends on the day of the wedding? It's the love and the moral commitment that exists between the bride and the bridegroom. In fact, on the day that the wedding is performed and the marriage takes place, all of that love and that moral commitment takes on an even new and more fulfilling form in terms of the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom, and so it is with the coming of Christ. So under the New Testament, this moral law of God continues, 
And Paul calls it the law of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. To those outside of the law, meaning Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, parenthetically he says, but not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, in order that I might win those outside the law. All of which to say, with respect to Psalm 119, verse 4, this command applies to us today under the New Testament, for we have the law of Christ, the moral law of God. So when verse 4 says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, there is a full and flourishing New Testament understanding of what that commandment means. Now, let me give this a further a further exposition, a further perspective of thought. First, we need to remember, God has the right to command. And we need to be reminded of this. God is the ultimate authority. Everything that is morally right and good begins in God. As Jesus himself said, only God is good. Mark 10, verse 18, Luke 16, 16. No one is good except God alone. But secondly, God has the obligation, an obligation to his own nature, to command. He is good. He's just. He is holy. It would be inconsistent to God's own nature, to God's own goodness, if God failed to give us the commandments that we need to know in order to obey. It's God's own nature to declare his moral will to his creatures. But then thirdly, God has rightly set the standard for our obedience to his commands. And it's the standard of diligence. It is the diligent keeping of his commands. And this Hebrew word means muchness of force, abundance, exceedingly, with all one's might. And the New Testament equivalent is when Jesus speaks about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is how Jesus and the Old Testament state the way in which we much love God with all of our might, with a full diligence. And therefore, we see that to love God with all of our might and to give God's word a complete and diligent obedience are two sides of the same coin. Of course, we're not able to do this. And that is why it was necessary for us to have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith. Why it's absolutely necessary to have the Holy Spirit of Christ living within us in order to will and to do God's good pleasure so that we might pursue the way of the Lord in order to walk in obedience to his word so that we might be able to say and think that whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, we might do it all to the glory of God. Now, let me wrap up with these final thoughts. Here's the idea. God is Lord, and his law is his way of guiding 
and guarding our lives. And this is a gift to us because our truest blessedness, our truest happiness comes from our redeemed relationship with God worked out in our obedience to his word. Because this is the truth. We are truly worshiping God, the purpose for which he made us, the purpose for which he redeemed us. When we are living obediently to his word from the heart. Amen. And let's pray. Our God and Father, enrich us in every way with every blessing of our salvation and particularly the desire to see Christ as Lord, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to love him above all else, above everything else, and to follow him faithfully wherever you would take us in this life. We ask for this. Remind us again that uh, all human beings hunger and thirst for happiness. Father, we are deluded if we think we can find happiness, contentment, purpose, or meaning in anything or anyone else but you. And so we pray, set our hearts rightly again to pursue Christ. Give us hearts that are grateful that our salvation rests most assuredly in him. His perfect righteousness credited to us when our sins were laid upon him, that we might trust him for everything. But in trusting him, pursuing him as our Lord, delighting to follow him and to obey his word, and experiencing in the relationship of redemption a blessedness that the world does not know. We ask and we pray for this as those who have been called in purpose to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.